Hello, what's up, leapers and fellow travelers? Sam here from Fate's Wide Wheel, Quantum Leap Podcast with Sam and Dennis. Dennis, of course, is not here. I am flying solo once again to bring you a, another update video, this time for Fate's Wide Wheel podcast, as well as a couple of things that are happening currently with the strikes. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to kind of kick off by saying that in our endeavors to not talk about the new show, uh, not talk about struck work at all, in spite of there being some really great stuff out there right now that is actually airing and streaming on services like Paramount Plus, um, and uh, one in particular in The Final Frontier that everyone I hope is watching uh, that I recently got caught up on. But uh, also, of course, not talking about uh, our favorite show, uh, one of the best shows on network TV right now. Um, we still wanted to be able to talk, of course, about the circumstances surrounding why we can't talk about that work, uh, as well as figuring out what we are going to talk about in the meantime, because we could easily go back to the classic series. We've got some revisited stuff uh, yet to cover, obviously, quite a bit. We, we stopped you know, early in season two with the original series and doing our classic series revisited uh, episodes. But because Dennis is kind of taking some time off from the actual podcasting aspect of it, I certainly didn't want to do that solo. It felt like something that we should be doing together. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to talk about the classic series without him or without having some guests on. Um, and as much as I love poaching Matt, uh, he is, of course, a part of that other Quantum Leap podcast um, and didn't want to necessarily take up too much of his time, although we will be talking about Beyond the Mirror Image um, as the first volume should be hitting print very soon and arriving to all the Kickstarter uh, supporters, which I am really looking forward to getting my copy. Um, some of the stuff that he shared with the uh, backers is fantastic. And if you are not a backer, if you did not have the chance to back that Kickstarter, don't worry, you'll still be able to get a copy. It will be print on demand, I believe, shortly after um, he mails everything out to the backers. And we'll, of course, share that information with you guys as soon as we have it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the strike. The strike is still going on, of course. Um, in fact, uh, just yesterday, as I record this, there was a massive picket line outside of NBC Universal Studios. Uh, I believe the numbers that were reported were somewhere around 11,000 um, strong showed up to, uh, of course, support uh, the Writers Guild strike, WGA strike, and the SAG-AFTRA strike. Um I, you know, I just have to say that, that of course, you know, we are supporting the rights of the workers. We're supporting, um, the artists and, and, and the people that so, uh, deserve to be rewarded for their work and treated fairly for their work. Uh, and of course not be displaced by any sort of modern technology, uh, or have to pay for the errors in judgment that, uh, corporate overlords, I say that slightly tongue in cheek have made, um, at their expense potentially, which is something we're going to get into in just a little bit. Um, so things are obviously still in full swing. It does not seem like there are going to be any productive conversations taking place anytime soon. I certainly hope that that changes, but from everything that I am reading and everything that I've heard talking to people that are involved, that does not include anyone involved with the show. I don't certainly want to, uh, make it sound like I'm speaking for anyone involved with the show because I am not, uh, I'm just talking about friends of mine who are SAG members who are out in LA, who've been in LA for a number of years, who have appeared on television shows, people that I know that have worked in writers, rooms, again, not involved with Quantum Leap. I just want to make that completely clear. I'm not talking about people that are involved with Quantum Leap. Um, but some of my friends who are involved uh, in television production in particular out there, uh, it does seem like the prevailing feeling is that things are going to go on until at least the fall. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that we're probably not going to really be hearing any positive updates uh, until late September, early October. Hopefully we'll hear something before then, but I don't know. At this point, I think that it's probably going to be until at least then, and it could carry over even longer. We'll see. Um, but I do think that things are going to get back to working hopefully before the end of the year. Um, I just don't necessarily see it lasting longer than that. I don't see how it can last longer than that. There's too, uh, too much at stake at, at this particular point. So uh, we'll see. I'm not a prognosticator and I am by no means an expert, although I'm trying my best to familiarize myself with uh, all the aspects of this, which is something else that I wanted to talk about because 
I learned some pretty enlightening things over the past week or so, um, just about what created the circumstances that allowed for this to happen. And one of the things that I found most fascinating has to do with the fact that we have a system where these studios um, are really no longer self-sufficient. You know, they're owned by larger corporations. And these larger corporations oftentimes are not concerned with producing art. They're concerned with producing content and earning money and finding ways to do that that kind of might put them on the, the leading edge. And that really uh, takes us to Netflix directly. Netflix started something that has had, I think, a lot of positive ramifications, not only for uh, folks like us, the observers, the consumers, if you want to call us, uh, whatever you know you, you want to term, uh, those of us that are, are watching um, and, and, and paying for these streaming services. Um, when Netflix realized that they could no longer... Uh, put confidence in turning a profit off of renting DVDs through the mail. Uh, and they started streaming um, and moving towards streaming as being their sole goal and, and, and indeed even phased out um, mailing out uh, uh, films at all um, or winding that down, which is no longer in existence, obviously. It, it really caused this shift in the way that people um, consumed their media. Um, and at the time, Netflix kind of being the only game in town, uh, it was pretty easy to uh, go and have a one-stop shop for uh, television especially, but also films. Um, we were seeing more and more films being added to the service, uh, especially newer films. Um, you weren't necessarily getting a lot of classic films, but even those started to make their way in. And before you knew it, Netflix had this incredible library of content that they could uh stream for people who are paying for the service. Now, where things start to get a little tricky is their success had interesting ramifications in the business world in particular, and, and, and they kind of became the darlings of Wall Street. Um, you, you know, you had uh, publications like the Wall Street Journal, like Forbes, you know, talking about the creative genius of a company like Netflix and the way that they were causing, you know, Blockbuster and, and, and all these video chains to go extinct. Hollywood Video, anybody remember them? Um, and now all of a sudden, uh, that was how we got our entertainment and, uh, other folks noticed, obviously, um, you know, we had Hulu come along, we had uh, HBO, uh, start to offer streaming services kind of packaged with, uh, your, your regular pay cable subscription. So you could stream HBO programs usually like a day after they aired and have sort of a bit of a library of content. And they continued to grow that and it became HBO go. And then it became HBO max. Now, of course it's just max. The thing that happened, and this is where I think things got a little out of control, is all of a sudden you had these companies that were traditionally able to make a film, sell a film and distribute a film to theaters, sell movie tickets, then sell the rights, the license, that film to an HBO or a Showtime or a Cinemax, etc. have a limited window where you could only see it there on those pay cable uh, networks. Then you would go to the video store and the only way you could see that film was to rent those video cassettes or DVDs. Uh, and then you would have somebody like TNT come along and scoop up the rights and, and play Shawshank Redemption, you know, 10 times a week or more. Um, when you think about that chain of distribution, there's money being made every step of the way. And that money is coming to the, the studios uh, that are licensing these films. And of course, contracts are constructed in such a way so that, you know, most of the people involved are getting a piece of that in some fashion or another. Um, now, not always, you know, it's not always that the directors are lining their pockets or the actors are lining their pockets with all of these, you know, syndicated rights or whatever, but generally contracts are constructed so that people are making, you know, residuals off of um, the distribution of this content. Now, when streaming came along, contracts started to have to get renegotiated a little bit, but sometimes we got a little bit of a raw deal. And part of the reason why is because 
no one was tracking those numbers or at least supplying those numbers in a transparent manner. To this day, we don't even know exactly what Netflix's numbers are. We get an idea of it. Suits recently is a perfect example of this, which had something insane, like, you know, billions of hours of streaming within the first few weeks of it hitting Netflix. And when you heard about what the actors were getting in return for that, it was pennies in some cases, like 42 cents. And that's not right. Um, however, as wrong as that might be, the other issue is you have to think about what Netflix is paying for this content. Because if Netflix is buying this content at bargain prices, then there's just not going to be enough money to go around to begin with, right? And again, transparency there, it's, 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 a little, it's a little wonky. You know, in some cases, we don't know exactly what's being paid for some of these things. Of course, it gets deeper because in the midst of Netflix licensing all of this content and then starting to create their own content and being Wall Street's darling, all of the sudden, you have people that are saying, hey, if we did this, then we could make some of that Netflix money. There's a slight hitch there, however. The hitch is, is the minute you had the HBOs and the Paramounts and the NBCs and everybody else creating their own streaming service in order to funnel their own content into, they started a situation where they could really only earn money off of those subscription dollars. They were literally cutting out other avenues of revenue for themselves. Now, granted, some of that revenue didn't really exist anymore right? You know, the video stores and, and the rental stuff, that kind of went the way of the dodo. Being able to make a lot of money off of these pay cable subscription services that are licensing their films, that really wasn't going to work anymore. But there's still plenty of money to be made in syndication and network distribution, etc. Now, of course, the other issue is, is that in some cases, of course, you have now these big conglomerates owning these networks. So the situation that I described earlier with like Shawshank Redemption in the 90s can't really even take place anymore either. The problem is, is the business was unable to evolve, ill-equipped to evolve alongside the technology and the shifts that were being created by things like streaming. And as a result of that, these corporations because we should really get away from saying the studios because the studios are not at fault here. These corporations did not know how to actually make money off of this content anymore. And they still don't. And the perfect example of that is something like Disney plus Disney plus is able to say, we've gained all these new subscribers. For instance, they're now, I'm using this as an example, this isn't true, but they, they just opened up France, let's say, and now they've got 2 million new subscribers in France. Well, that's great. They can report we've got 2 million new subscribers, but they're not going to retain all of those subscribers and they're not going to continue adding those subscribers. They can for a limited window because they can keep opening in new countries until they're global. And then once Disney Plus exists everywhere, great. But the problem is, is that, again, they're creating all this content. They're spending all this money to create this content. They're trying to charge consumers in order to use and access their streaming site. But that's where it ends. They don't have any distribution scheme for any of this. In some cases, Disney in particular, they're not even planning on releasing physical media for some of their shows. You can't go buy Andor. You can't go buy... Uh, WandaVision. You, you can't go buy Loki. You can only find it on the streaming service. And in some cases, in the case of the Willow television show, for instance, you can't even stream it anymore. Now, granted, that was kind of done as a bit of a tax write-off, right? Because now we can kind of just jettison this. And plus, the other thing is that kind of sucks about that is they weren't even necessarily responsible for the bulk of the production money there. They had to buy the show in order to stream it. But they weren't actually the ones creating the show in the same way that they're doing with the Marvel shows and with the Star Wars shows. So unfortunately, they've created a situation where they're no longer earning the same amount of money that they were able to earn off of the productions that they were able to like 30 years ago. 
And as the business has morphed over the past 15 years and gone into the streaming model, the revenue is no longer keeping pace with what they're spending. And yes, we are seeing CEOs make more money than they've ever made before, and that's not okay. But when you look at the bottom line of a lot of these corporations and you look at the revenue that's being generated by these streaming services, they're going to lose so much in the long run. So when you hear about Disney Plus losing money, when you hear about Peacock losing money, when you hear about, actually Peacock didn't lose money, believe it or not. There was a report that came out recently about Peacock losing money, but it was an odd report that that wasn't based on the whole picture. And it was something to the effect of like, Peacock lost $65 million, but they, they didn't take into account that they had actually gained like $280 million. So they still you know, gained a lot of money there. But anyway, I don't want to get in the weeds about that. The fact is, is that a lot of these companies are going to end up bleeding money because um, they're unable to kind of keep up. And as a result of that, um, they're trying to they're trying to screw the artists, quite frankly, because they probably shouldn't have had the keys to the kingdom in the first place because they really don't know what the hell they're doing. And I'm certainly in no position to be able to tell anyone what to do. I have no idea how to fix it. I can only look at the information that's out there right now and kind of generate an idea of what might have gone wrong. Um, but I certainly was not smart enough to follow it as it was happening. As it was happening, I just sat back and thought, oh, this is cool. Great. Netflix is awesome. Wait, there's another one out there. Oh, there's another one out there. Oh, there's another one out there. And now we're in the same situation as we were with cable when you had to pay for this channel and that channel and this channel and that channel and this channel. And you, you know, I didn't want to have to pay $150 a month for my cable bill. Um, what I really would love to do is to be able to do like something a la carte where I could just get the channels that I really, really want and pay a small price for it. That was never going to happen though. You had to bundle it. That was the other way that they were making money, right? Because everything was bundled under this cable subscription service. Everyone was making money. So it's like, if I had to buy these 200 channels in order to get the 15 channels that I really, really wanted. Well, guess what? My money was still getting split 200 ways. And that's the other thing that's missing from this picture. These streaming services that are, that, 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 that are so, um, you know, dependent on subscribers. Well, the problem is, is that that money's no longer getting split and evenly divided. Like we don't have a situation where like, you know, uh, the rising tide lifts all boats. It's not that anymore. Now it's every man for themselves, basically. Um, and, 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 and I think that that situation, it just cannot hold. Um, and, and it's the reason why there are so many, um, shifts in the way that people are doing business. There are so many uh, notions of how uh, uh, other networks uh, are going to survive or not. Um, there are big bargaining chips out there. Uh, the biggest one right now apparently is ESPN. Um, sports is going to really control, I think, the future of uh, streaming services and the way that a lot of these studios do business because it's, it's, it's a, it's, Proof. You know, it's like we can actually make money off of this. It's interesting because the reason why I haven't mentioned Amazon Prime very much in this is because Amazon Prime doesn't necessarily rely on just their content in order to make money. And so Amazon is able to produce these shows and have their subscription service, but a lot of the people that have Prime don't subscribe to Prime so that they can watch Mrs. Maisel, which I love and is incredible and is awesome. A lot of the people that subscribe to Prime that happen to watch Mrs. Maisel subscribe to Prime for all the other benefits like two-day shipping. So Amazon is kind of a little bit separate from this discussion in some ways because they had a corporate model that worked and then they were able to add on this other stuff as well. Whereas these other companies had corporate models that were becoming quickly outmoded and outdated, they just didn't necessarily know how to actually turn it into something successful. And cooperation and collaboration is probably going to be the key to the future. As wild as it sounds, Disney is not nearly as untouchable or Teflon as we may have once thought that it was. Disney could be in trouble. And look, Disney's probably not going to go out of business, right? They're probably not going to just cease to exist. But they're certainly in trouble to a degree where they're scaling back production of content already, where they're trying to figure out how do we stop bleeding money? How do we continue to have subscribers? How do we produce content that people are going to want? How do we shore all of this up? And one of the ways that they're thinking about doing that apparently is selling ESPN. 
And if they sell ESPN, they're going to make a ton of money. It is going to be a huge infusion of cash. Now, they might not just sell it outright. They may end up actually just selling distribution rights. And so that package that you have right now with ESPN, Hulu, and Disney might not exist in the future. And ESPN might actually go, one of the things I've heard, potentially to Amazon. And so Amazon would own ESPN. Another place that it might end up is Apple, Apple TV. That's the other thing. Apple TV, again, much like Amazon Prime, does not depend on Apple TV for a stream of revenue. That's why Apple TV will probably continue to you know, to exist in much the same way as it has. It doesn't need a Ted Lasso to be successful, although it doesn't hurt, but they can produce those shows and you can stream that content without necessarily having to worry about how we're going to find uh, uh, that next dollar. Whereas Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, Hulu, um, which of course is a part of Disney, uh, even Netflix, and of course HBO Max, or just Max, excuse me, All of them depend on the content they produce in order to make their money, in order to be able to produce the content that they continue to produce. Look, I'm not an expert, all right? You can probably tell if you've been listening to this that some of this I'm I'm connecting the dots as I go along here because I've read, listened to, and watched quite a bit over the past week and a half or so in order to come to some of these conclusions. The information's out there, and I'll provide some of it in the show notes. There's an incredible article in Collider, incredible article in Wired. There's a wonderful podcast that I listened to recently, um, which really, really helped to shed a lot of light on this. Um, it's Plain English with Derek Thompson, July 19th. 2023 episode, How Hollywood Drove Its Business Model Off a Cliff. That's really the basis for a lot of what I'm talking about here. I think it's important to understand all of this, not only to understand how we got to a situation where these strikes became so apparently necessary, but also to maybe start to understand where these corporations are having trouble meeting the demands of the unions. That's not to say that the unions should not get theirs. That's not to say that I don't agree fully with the unions and their reasons for being on the picket line. However, I think that it's a little deeper and it's a little more nuanced and the conversations need to continue instead of people saying we're not going to be at the table until they come to us. I think the most important thing that anyone can ever do is show up. Show up on the picket line. Show up on social media, raise your voices, support these unions. But you know what? You've got to go to the table in order to get something done. And I think that right now, the corporations, the unions, everybody should be at that table hashing this out. Because ultimately, what's at stake here is literally the future of the entertainment industry. AI is not going to take over anyone's job. It's not. Now, I think that background actors, and certainly the size of writer's rooms are in jeopardy. There's no doubt about that. However, I don't think that that's what this fight is really truly about. I think what this fight is really truly about is the viability of the streaming model as we go forward and how we produce films and television that is able to profit these corporations and the people that are making this art. Television is not going to go away. I think the networks are are still going to be where they are. We're still going to have, uh, you know, ad-supported television like we've had for the past 80 years, you know, um, almost anyway. Uh, Things have not changed so much that we're not going to have on-air broadcast television. However, I think that the corporations that are currently in ownership of these major networks are in trouble. And they're in trouble because of these streaming models and the systems that they've decided to dismantle without realizing exactly how to build something new and how to build something profitable. All that said, stream your shows, you know, support these subscription models if it's possible for your wallet if you're interested in the shows that they're putting out and if you want to support the artists that are involved the best thing we can do is to keep watching and 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 unfortunately 
We can't talk about it. That's what SAG-AFTRA has handed down. And look, I'm just going to say it right now. It's a misguided guideline. It is absolutely 100% misguided, and it needs to change. And if anyone from SAG-AFTRA is watching this, which I highly doubt, but if you are a member of SAG-AFTRA, if you are a member of the union, the fact of the matter is, is that a podcast like this should be able to talk about this content much in the same way that you're telling us to go watch these things. Because if we can't talk about it, and if we can't stimulate these conversations within the fandom, the excitement levels will absolutely cool. It's just going to happen. And there are a lot of folks out there that are ignoring these guidelines. They are. But the fact is that Dennis and I are both still involved on some small level with 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 theater and and acting and and the fact that a a threat would loom over us as large as being denied uh, uh entrance into the union should we ever be in a position to actually you know become members uh it, it, it's enough to say hey maybe we should cool it a little bit and on top of all of that you have plenty of other people out there on other social media platforms and channels that want to shame those that are currently talking about it now a lot of people don't seem to give a shit they're going to continue to talk about whatever they want to talk about and that's fine and maybe they are being paid by the studios and maybe that's exactly what sag after is trying to go after because they don't necessarily want these corporations to be able to profit off of the voices of these people or these people to profit off of their shows without necessarily being able to come to terms with the actual unions now it's worth noting that there are some studios out there that are coming to terms. A24 is a perfect example. A24 has met every single demand for the WGA and SAG-AFTRA so they can continue to produce films and people can continue to promote the films that A24 is producing. That's awesome. I hope we see more of that. I hope we find ways to meet these demands. However, in the meantime... I think that people need to be having these conversations about the art that we love so that we can support, we can support these shows so that when they come back on the air, people are watching and people are aware. And I don't think that fate's wide wheel is moving the needle. Okay. Look, I'm just going to get it out right now. I don't think we're necessarily adding tons of eyes or viewership to quantum leap, but I know we're stoking the conversation. I know that we're a part of that fandom. I know that, 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 that what we are able to contribute is something of value. I know that the people involved with the show think that. So if that's the case, I just don't understand why folks like us and our little podcast shouldn't be allowed to talk about it. And maybe we're misinterpreting things. Maybe we're misinterpreting exactly what that statement and those guidelines mean. Maybe we're not even supposed to be included and we have absolutely nothing to be worried about. I don't know. And that's part of the freaking problem. We should know. We should have clearer guidelines and we should know exactly what an influencer is. I don't want to consider myself an influencer. I kind of gag at the thought of considering myself an influencer. I don't want to influence anybody. I just want to have cool conversations about something that I love. <sighs> So all of that said, we're not going to be talking about the show anytime soon. And I don't really want to talk much more about the strike. And I'm sure there will be conversations that will roll out of what I just said. I'm sure people will have questions and comments and nitpicks and corrections of which there could be many along the way because I'm just trying to summarize and synthesize some of what I have digested over the past week or so. Um, but I look forward to that. I look forward to what other people have to say. I look forward to what other people have to add to the conversation. I am all for that 100%. What I'm not about is I'm just not about people getting hurt in the process. And unfortunately, we are in a situation where people are getting hurt. And um, there's the possibility that even after things resolve, uh, there are going to be some folks out of work. And we're going to come back to smaller writers' rooms. Um, that the people that are going to be able to stick around are the people that uh, are indispensable are undeniable. Um, that the, that, that, that the room for people to learn and the room for an assistant here to, to get a script produced and, 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 and this person to contribute this and that person, they're not going to be there anymore. And I think unfortunately what that's going to mean is that we're going to have a far less richer experience when we get to see some of these shows and experience some of this television. I think of the fact that in these days you have to, you have to produce something that is almost pitch perfect from day one in order to succeed anyway. Um, shows don't get the chance that they used to get. If you go back and you look at just about any television program from the last 80 years, you are going to find, uh, 
episodes in the first season or two, which you just don't know what they're about. They don't know what the show is about. They don't know what the characters are about. They just don't know. I mean, look, one of the perfect examples, one of the most talked about examples, look at the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. The first season of Star Trek The Next Generation is, on a whole, kind of bad. It's not great. You know, there's some great performances. There's a few standout episodes. But overall, it's really not great. And truth be told, the second season is not much better. So it took them, it took them almost 48 episodes before they really got to know what that show was, what it could be, who these characters were, who these actors were, who these writers were. It took them time to craft that. And that's something that we don't get anymore. And unfortunately, what that's going to mean is not only are we going to have shows that seems disposable as, 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 you know, your weekly garbage, but now you're going to have artists that feel that disposable. I mean, they already do in a lot of ways. But where people can learn sitting in those writers' rooms and being able to, to write that first episode that might not necessarily be that great or get that help along the way so that that first episode can be really great or be able to have the chance to say, hey, I'm great, give me a chance. Like we saw last season in Quantum Leap, arguably two of the best episodes of the season were written by first-time writers. These people deserve to have a chance. And I'm just worried that in the climate that we've created and the situation that has been created and with everything that's happening in the vitriol that's out there right now with these strikes that when we come back those positions just aren't even going to exist anymore and that's sad it's so sad and i just wish that we could be a little bit more kind i wish we could be a little bit more kind as we talk about these shows i wish we could be a little bit more kind as we come to the table to try to have an agreement so that we can continue to produce these shows and that so artists can can continue to be cultivated because that's the world that i definitely want to live in you know there's a lot of opportunities out there that i didn't get there's opportunities i didn't take there's jobs i turned down because of just stupid bullshit reasons. You know, I, I know what it's like to be an artist and to try and figure out your way and to figure out your own path. And without some of the support that I received, I never would have had some of the opportunities that I did take and some of the opportunities that I did have. You know, those times that I did spend as an equity actor and was a part of a union and knew what it was like to, to feel so taken care of, to all of a sudden like walk backstage and just be like, oh, this is, this is what this is like. You know, to walk into a green room and just kind of be like, this is nice, you know, to walk in and know that the expectations were I had to get there, I had to do my work and 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 leave and and I would be taken care of and supported in ways that that creative people need to be supported in in, in order to create something that that is meaningful and impactful and can help to illuminate the human condition and and and, and the situations in which we all share. And I just firmly believe that that the situation that has been cultivated and that we are in now is one that is 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 detrimental to us all. And, and it could have incredibly awful ramifications for the future of the entire entertainment and art industry. So I really hope that we can find a way to turn it around. And, 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 and that I also hope that we can find a way that we can continue to talk about the things that we love without threat of not being allowed into the club if we ever get to have the chance to have a seat at the table, if the table's even fucking there. Thank you uh, for coming, my fellow travelers. Um, but that brings me on to something that, that that's a little bit more fun, I think. And, and that's where we go from here as a podcast, uh, as Fate's Wide Wheel. Um, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk a whole lot with Dennis recently about exactly what we want to do going forward um, into the new season. You know, we, we, we have an idea uh, now, of course, there's a premiere date set and, uh, you know, we know when the show is going to be on. And my feeling is, and a feeling that I believe is supported by folks that are involved with the show, uh, is that we should, we should talk about it when it comes back on the air. That, that it's fine to take this time off now, to take a breath, and to allow the systems that are in place to try and work. And uh, we don't need to be fawning over every little detail that's out there. You've got Google, you've got other sources of information. People are still talking about the show and publishing stuff about the show. Um, you know, in spite of, of the SAG after guidelines, which we may be misreading and taking too seriously. I don't know. Anyway, um, 
we definitely, I definitely need something to talk about in the meantime. I am not in a show right now. I'm not auditioning for stuff. Things are wild around here. My daughter starts kindergarten in like a week and a half. And uh, I am barely ready for that. I'm barely ready for the idea that she's going to be in a school all day long and not with me. Um, uh, it's invigorating to think that I'll have uh, some more free time and, and have more one-on-one time with, you know, my, my two-year-old, nearly two-year-old son, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's, it's also terrifying in so many ways. Um, and I just need a space where I can come and create and, and share. And that's what I love about being able to do this. So the things that I would like to talk about going forward, um, I'd love to talk about physical media. I had a lot of fun talking about the Quantum Leap Season 1 uh, Blu-ray. Um, I would love to continue uh, having the opportunity to do that. I mean, as I sit here right now, I've got some stuff uh, on my right and sitting on, on my desk um, that, that just came in the mail, including the 4K Ultra HD of Rio Bravo, um, which I think is an incredible film. Um, um, although I wonder how my opinions may have changed as it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but it's still a beautifully shot film, beautifully written film. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what it looks like in 4k um i have notifications going off uh, on my computer uh and uh, i'm not going to edit that out uh and uh, i also have season one of a show um that uh explores the final frontier that airs on paramount plus which is just flipping fantastic and uh i think out of respect again for those guidelines which we may be taking too seriously and misreading uh, i won't talk about that show specifically which really stinks because it's awesome and deserves to be talked about as well um but there are plenty of people still talking about it so that's fine um, however, uh, a couple of things that I threw out on social media earlier today, um, the three shows that I think I'm most interested in talking about, and not as extensively as we've covered Quantum Leap, are Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, The Incredible Hulk, and the original Twilight Zone. I think if I were to talk about the Twilight Zone, I would probably include some of the other stuff that's associated with it as well. Um, but I, I love the Twilight Zone. I've, I've loved the Twilight Zone since I was a little kid. It used to scare me. My grandfather loved it, and and it would be on inevitably uh, at night, and uh, he would watch it. You know, maybe before he went to bed or something, and I would always get a little freaked out by it. And then he would go to bed, and I would like put a movie in the VCR because we usually rented movies or something like that, or a rest show that we had rented at the video store um, and try to fall asleep to that because I was a little unsettled by the Twilight Zone. And I recently uh, did like a full rewatch. Well, not that recently. It was probably like five or six years ago. Um, And just... You know, I'm just so blown away by by the quality of the writing and the quality of the acting. And uh, I think one of the things that I loved about it is that there's something um, to me that just feels very much like live theater about the show. And part of that, of course, is because it was not so far divorced from live theater in many ways. I mean, early television was in essence just you know taped theater in a lot of aspects. Um, it was live, and uh, it was written by folks that were you know were were, were writing in a tradition. Um, that did not rely on some of the conventions and conceits that had been, you know, formulated for film and, and then television later on down the road. So a lot of that golden age of television in the fifties and early sixties, you know, definitely feels a lot more, um, like something you're going to see on stage, uh, than, than, than what we're kind of used to, I think these days with, with television, um, and certainly with film. So the opportunity to talk about the Twilight Zone is something that I'm certainly chomping at the bit to do. Um, I recently picked up the third edition of the Twilight Zone Companion, um, which is expanded and revised by Mark Scott Zerkri, um, which is kind of the... Um, you know, the standard tome for the Twilight Zone. Um, I, I think anyone who's interested in reading more about the show, that's the starting point. There's a lot of other books out there that are really great, a couple of which uh, I'm currently reading as well. Um, but uh, the Twilight Zone Companion is certainly the perfect place to start. Um, the cool thing about the third edition, actually, is that Mark was able to take uh, information that he learned from books that were published sort of after his book, uh, a couple of which were sort of aimed at at fixing errors in, in the, um, the first edition and even the second edition um, and synthesize a lot of that material and make those corrections so that the third edition really stands as kind of like the authoritative work now on the Twilight Zone. Um, and it's cool because he even talks about in the, in the foreword, for instance, and I'm basically going to do a mini review of the book. I don't mean to, but he does talk about in, in, in the new uh, foreword that um, 
when he was writing the first book, a lot of that information that, it, that, that people were using to write some of these later works was not accessible. You know, he was able to interview a lot of people involved with the show, but, uh, you know, having access to, um, you know, certain things like production reports and that sort of stuff, it just, it just wasn't around. They didn't think it existed even. And so, um, when some of that stuff was found and when, you know, when these boxes and boxes of thousands and thousands of pages, um, of memos and, and, and production stuff, uh, was unearthed, um, um, it really kind of became a situation where all of a sudden, uh, this new information could, could shed a light uh, in some of these dark corners that that initially he was unable to write about, which I think is really really cool. Um, and and there's a, another great book, uh, The Twilight Zone: Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, um, which is by Martin Graham's Jr. And that was published in 2008. And that book um, is 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 certainly uh, I think the next step um, for folks that are looking for a book uh, after The Twilight Zone Companion. I think that Unlocking the Door really dives deep into um, the specificity and tries to use as many like, uh, uh, you know, primary sources as possible letters, uh, production documents, of course, original scripts, et cetera, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the reason why I talk about that is because I'm so excited to be able to use these and bring these things to bear on watching the show and discussing the show and talking about the show and sharing the show with you. Um, the other reason why I'm excited about it is because I feel like the twilight zone, um, you know, it, 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 it is absolutely an influence on Quantum Leap in many ways. Um, and I'm talking about the classic series here now. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, and not in any way talking about the new series. But I, I think that the the um, implications of having kind of this anthology show and something that um, I know, you know, Don Belisario was interested in even before Deborah Pratt came up with the idea for Quantum Leap and, 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 and kind of, you know, gave that idea to him that he was interested in having that anthology show. And, and now all of a sudden he had this wonderful vehicle in which to do that with. Um, and so, you know, Quantum Leap in a lot of ways is this one hour, you know, drama anthology um and, and and is able to kind of go through the history that don belisario lived um you know and, and, and deborah pratt lived and, and and all of these writers that um you know so brilliantly constructed these episodes and these adventures that sam was able to go on for those five seasons um and you know similarly the twilight zone for five seasons you know took you places that you know you couldn't go on on a show that wasn't um, an anthology. So, uh, I think that, that there's some commonalities and some common threads. And of course the use of time travel, um, and, and the idea that, uh, some of the early stuff that, that Rod Serling had worked with in order to kind of get to the twilight zone had to do with time travel, uh, is another really cool connection. Um, I'm not going to try to like, you know, draw too many parallels between the two. That's not what the discussion will be about at all. I just want to talk about the Twilight Zone. I'm just saying I think it's interesting to be able to talk about a show like that uh, in the context of what the classic series of Quantum Leap did as well. Um, you know, for the other two, the interesting thing is, is that I think The Incredible Hulk was really kind of one of the last... Um, shows and quantum leap you know arguably fits this category as well which is one of the reasons why also the connective tissue that kind of exists there it was one of those uh you know those shows of that dying genre i feel like uh where you had um a main character and that was it you know that you didn't you didn't necessarily have a, a large supporting cast that there were different situations every week and of course there were shows afterwards that were pardon me that were similar enough to that you know, shows like uh, Knight Rider, for instance, shows like Quantum Leap. Um, but but ultimately, you know, ensemble shows, especially in the one hour format, um, really became kind of the, 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 the thrust of a lot of our television viewing. And so um, to think of, of, of the anthology format mixed with sort of this like, you know, lone uh, protagonist traveling from town to town. And yes, of course you had Jack McGee. So you did have kind of a supporting character, but he wasn't in every single episode. Um, and uh, although he was in most of them, but um, you know, the, the idea of, of that kind of journey um, for the character, I think is really cool. And, and of course for me personally, I love the way that the show was able to take uh, this comic book character and and really um, put it into this very real world. And, you know, did it always work? Did it not always work? I don't know. There were some very interesting comments actually on social media. Pardon me, I'll grab my phone. Um, in, in response to um, 
you know, me kind of asking the question of like, should I talk about this or should I talk about that? And, uh, you know, a couple of the, the comments, um, uh, Bertrand Hebert, who is a, um, a writer uh, up in Canada, actually, the Incredible Hulk deserves a look over. It's older and our memories of it are much better than the actual show. Why is that? Um, you know, I wonder if my memories are uh, better. I don't know. I don't know, Bertrand. We're going to find out because I, I look forward to, to rewatching it um, and, and seeing what it looks like on Blu-ray, by the way, um, being the physical media person that I am. Um, because, I, you know, there are some really great episodes. And I think the other thing is the conceit of the show in general allows for them to explore a little bit more ground. Now it's easy for the show to be a little bit monotonous. It's easy for the show to feel formulaic in some ways. However, uh, another response that we got, which is great from uh, a listener, uh, Amy L. Hull, uh, Hull, excuse me, Hull. Uh, also, I do think a lot of that show was carried by the theme music. It did a lot of emotional heavy lifting for the show. Plus, for many of us, these weren't old cliches. Hulk was the first place a lot of us saw many of those tropes. And that is an excellent point, Amy, because I think that for um, for a lot of us, some of these shows were our introductions to um, the way that television was constructed. And I think that the Hulk is a wonderful example of that because, you know, it has a lot in common with The Fugitive, for instance. And the fugitive when it was doing the things that it was doing, you know, those were mostly new, especially for viewers at the time, because it was, it was a little bit different. Um, you, you know, you had Westerns. Sure. You had like wanted dead or alive or the loner, you know, shows like that, which I, I think were, um, you know, able to, uh, or, or even a show like the rifleman or, or, you know, all of these, these early shows, Paladin is another example. All of these early shows, Paladin is a great show, by the way, or not Paladin, excuse me, have gun will travel. Um, that is a great show. Uh, but you have these early shows that, uh, focused on kind of, you know, the, that lone protagonist and, um, and put them in different situations each week. And again, like you say, they were the ones that were kind of, you know, discovering what became tropes later on and what became ground that was retread with just different characters kind of put in. And, and, and it, so it became more about the people and it's like, how are these people going to react in these situations and what obstacles can we put in their place that will separate it from, you know, the, the, the formula, uh, even though, the formula was what propelled the show, you know, plot wise. Um, the fascinating thing is when you look at a show like have gun will travel, that show was able to subvert the formula in so many ways, even though it was one of the shows that was responsible for creating the formula. Um, which I think is fascinating because shows that came after were unable to do that very thing. Uh, even though they didn't have the burden of creating the formula. Um, so I, I am fascinated by that aspect of television. You know, you look at a show like Kung Fu, for instance, is another great example of that lone protagonist and, you know, having almost that, that anthology like feel. And it really becomes about like, you know, who these characters are, what do they want, and what are the obstacles in their way? And I think the incredible Hulk is fascinating for many reasons, because uh, I, I think that, um, you know, Bill Bigsby as Bruce Banner is, is just magnificent at every turn, even in the, even in the, the bad episodes, he's still, great you know it's it's impossible not to empathize with him and not to just feel for him he creates this incredibly sympathetic banner um and uh you know it, it makes you root for the hulk even more while at the same time realizing how awful a curse it is that he is the hulk and and i think that that dynamic alone is enough to really carry you through the show um there's some really bad episodes though so it'll be really interesting when we get there how we react to some of that um and and, and what i might have to say about some of those uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows my love for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It is one of my favorite television shows of all time. Uh, I was thinking about it earlier today, actually, and recalling as a, as a young child, uh, young child, I mean, I was, I was 10, I believe, when it began airing. Um, and uh, I just fell in love with it pretty much right away. And the funny thing is, is I didn't think I was going to. Um, I, I thought I, I kind of rolled my eyes at it at first. Um, I think like... Uh, Excuse me, I was, I was 11 when it began airing. Um, anyway, I rolled my eyes at it like a lot of Star Trek fans at the time. You know, the notion of there not being a, a spaceship. Like, they're not traveling from place to place. You know, we're not going to have battles between the Enterprise and Romulan Warbirds. Like, what am I, why am I going to watch this? And I will admit that as an 11-year-old, in a lot of ways, Emissary, the, the premiere episode was a little over my head. And I wasn't 100% sold, except for the characters. These characters were unlike anything I had ever seen in Star Trek before in so 
many ways. Uh, you know, and, and the, the ones I were drawn to immediately were Odo and Quark, you know, which I think it holds true for a lot of people even to this day. Um, you know, Odo was, was easily my favorite character, um, as a kid and, and, and just imagining the possibilities of being able to do what he could do and yet also feel so disconnected from the world around him. And I think that that, that sense of alienation was something that I always connected to. And it was hard for me to connect to that with somebody like Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. I never really felt that for him. I felt it for Spock. Uh, in the classic series, when I got into the classic series, which I'd seen a few episodes here and there as a youngster, but I didn't really get into the classic series until I was probably about 15 or so, um, catching the re-airings, um, in syndication when I lived in North Carolina. Um, and, 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 and at that point getting into the classic series, like Spock was a character that I was able to connect with quite a bit. Um, not even because of the logic, but just the sense of kind of alienation, no pun intended. Uh, but Odo, Odo, even more than Spock for me, um, which is nothing against Leonard anymore because I, I, I love Leonard and I love Spock and I love the character of Spock. Um, I think Ethan Peck, um, does a wonderful job, uh, as well, but, um, and Zachary Quinto. Uh, although, to be honest with you, like as much as I as much as I loved uh, the movies, I love I, I I do. I, I know there are some Star Trek fans that don't like them, but I love those iterations of Star Trek. It's some of my favorite Star Trek. Um, I, I think those films are just are, are fantastic. Yes, even into darkness. Um, but anyway, uh, I. I, I just connected with Odo so well, so much. And, and I love that character. I still love that character. And, um, he, you know, I, I, I think, um, I, I've been trying to motivate myself to go to, to more conventions as, as money allows and time allows recently, because, uh, I never got to meet Rene Albergenois and, and, and I know that he was, uh, at some of these conventions that I didn't go to. And it makes me very sad because I would have loved to have just been able to share some space with him for a brief moment, even take a picture and just tell him thank you because I just loved that character and I loved his portrayal of the character. Um, and so Deep Space Nine is something that I've always loved. And of course, as I've aged and as I've gotten older, I've been able to appreciate that show in so many more ways. I think Cisco is arguably the most important captain in the history of Star Trek for many reasons. And it's not just because he's a person of color, but it's also because he's a father. Um, and, 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 his fatherhood in particular, his single fatherhood, his, his widowed fatherhood was something that was so integral to the character and the show. Um, I mean, you, you could argue, you could make a very strong case that that show is indeed about being a single parent. Um, that relationship with Jake is so incredibly important. And hearing Sirach Lofton talk about, um, you know, his relationship, um, um, it, you know, with Avery Brooks is, is quite touching. Um, and, um, just so many of the other dynamics that went into that show, um, you know, uh, Nana Visitor, uh, as Kira, I, I mean, Kira Reese is another favorite character. And for a while, the Bajorans were my favorite alien race. I just loved everything about them. I loved the, you know, the, the, it's funny because I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I do consider myself spiritual. And I just, there's something about, uh, you know, the Bajoran religion, uh, and the spirituality that, that for some reason moved me and touched me as a youngster. And, um, and of course the parallels obviously with religious extremism and terrorism and, and subjugation and, uh, with the Cardassians, it's, it, you know, it's fascinating and there's so much to be mined from that. And, and, and while I don't think there's a one for one parallel with any real world situations, I think it's so applicable to so many different situations. And I think that there are so many people that have drawn things, whether it's, you know, uh, the more obvious Israel Palestine conflict or, or whether it's, you know, something like, uh, you know, even Ireland and the troubles. And, and I mean, there's, there's so many parallels there that, um, it's, it's just deep track and it's, and it's deeper track in a lot of ways because they had that confined location because they had the continuing storyline unlike a lot of other star trek and, and i would still argue that it is the most successful iteration of star trek to have that continuing storyline um I, I don't think that any other star trek has come close i won't count picard season three and the main reason why is because i think picard season three is more kind of like a mini series you know event uh, as opposed to being a continuing series the same way that D ds9 was so i could sit here and gush about ds9 for for, you know, forever. And I look forward to the opportunity to be able to do that. But of course, much like some of the other television we're talking about, there's some bad episodes, um, but they had the chance to make those bad episodes and writers had the chance, the opportunity to fail. And I'm going to go back to the strikes for a second. And I'm going to go back to the entertainment industry because here's something that is incredibly important for artists. Artists need to have the opportunity and freedom to fail. 
there is nothing more valuable than failure to an artist and artists who are able to actually allow themselves to fail, allow themselves to learn from their failures, allow themselves to take problems apart and find new ways to fix them, find new ways to attack them. Those are the artists that are not only the most successful, but those are the artists that are responsible for true genius. And that true genius touches us in ways that is almost hard to describe, almost beyond description. It's so important that people who can just walk into a room, show up, cross their arms and say, this is how you fix this. And this is how you do it. Those people are often boring and wrong and uninspired. And so to be able to have people that, that have the opportunity and the freedom to fail, oh, it's, it's just, it's so incredibly important. And and I, and I want so badly for those opportunities to continue to exist and exist in mass quantity. Um, you know, I, I know we'll never consume media in the same ways that we used to. I know that, you know, those, those, those eras of, you know, the nineties and must see TV in the early two thousands when it was just so easy to kind of have a, have a show that you were going to watch every single night and enjoy and not be inundated with all this reality t TV or game show TV or whatever we want to call some of the stuff that's out there these days, but to have actual scripted television with actual artists working in front of a camera and behind a camera. I know that those halcyon days are no longer in existence, but we need them. We need them. We desperately need them. We need to be able to have that art and, and find ways to touch and move people uh, and inspire people. And, and, and that freedom and opportunity to fail is so vital. And that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine had. Their first season, in my opinion, has grown in esteem uh, for me. I, I, I appreciate that first season far more than I used to. Um, I used to be one of those people that as I watched season one, I enjoyed it. As a, as a youngster, it was fun. It was destination TV for me in a lot of ways. Um, I had the Star Trek Deep Space Nine magazine Um I had a couple of the novels, I think. Um, I really got into Star Trek New Frontier uh, as a novel series, though, and I didn't really look back. That was the one I followed the most, and I didn't read a lot of the other novels. There were a few Next Generation novels here or there, but um, I don't think I read any uh, classic series novels until I was like in college or out of college. But anyway... Um, yeah, I, I really look forward to being able to talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It's something I love deeply, and I hope to get some guests on the show to talk about it. Not not people who worked on it, although that would be amazing and awesome. And if anybody can connect me with anybody, whether they were just you know uh, a, a key grip or or you know if they were in the writers' room or, or whatever, I don't care. You know, I would love to talk to folks that worked on uh, Deep Space Nine. That would be a huge thrill for me, uh, if only to just tell them thank you and then try to stumble for for questions. Um, but, um, I really look forward to being able to do that. And I look forward to being able to prepare something. I've already written a few things and, and, and prepared a few things. And I think that it's going to be important to, to, to do a little bit more of that work as I go forward. I didn't do a lot of preparation for this, honestly. Um, as you can probably tell, uh, the main reason why is because, uh, I just wanted to talk. I just wanted to be able to talk to people. I wanted to try to synthesize some of the ideas that, um, you know, had been put in front of me. Uh, over these past couple of weeks and some of the things that I'd learned and some of the new perspectives that I had gained. It was very, very easy for me early on to just be like, oh, pay them, pay the artists and you know, take care of them right now, do that. And while I still believe that, I, I do think there's a more nuanced conversation that we need to be having, especially those of us that support um, um, the artists and, 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 and especially the artists themselves. Um, and, and, and I know those conversations are taking place. I would never presume to, 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 to tell uh, the people whose livelihoods um, are at stake here how to, how to approach these situations. Um, but I, but I, I do hope uh, uh, that we can bring to bear that nuance on the conversations that we're having in uh, you know, as a general public as well. And in particular in these fandoms, because these fandoms exist because of the art that's created. And uh, I think uh, arguably some of these programs exist uh, because of the fandoms um, that have been created. And, uh, you know, they, they know um, that in order to continue um, to be successful, in these mediums that, that the fandoms, you know, they, they're watching quite frankly. Uh, you know, the fandoms are watching right now. And while there are portions of the fandoms that don't necessarily completely understand what's going on, there's portions of the fandoms that are frankly on the corporation sides that don't have time for the union antics, um, that there are a lot of us, probably the majority of us that do 
have an idea at least of what's going on, maybe even more than an idea, uh, and are in full support of the artists. So, um, so yeah, so I wanted to come on. I wanted to say hi. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to just thank you all for being here and say, I'm glad you're here. Um, uh, I, I cannot tell you what a thrill it is to be able to, to come on here and talk to you and, and, and be a part of this, this fandom and, um, not even our own specific quantum leap fandom, but just in general, sort of the genre television fandom, um, um, that I think binds a lot of us together. Um, it's easy for some folks to look down their nose on certain shows, uh, to try and, you know, place other shows or fandoms above others. But for me in particular, one thing that I'm learning, uh, is that, uh, the things that I love are, are, are connected in these wonderful ways and finding those connections and, and just spinning fate's wide wheel and seeing where we land uh, is, is half the fun uh, of doing this sometimes. So I really, really can't tell you how much I appreciate that you are along for the ride. And I look forward to seeing where we go from here. Um, you know, we've got a couple of months now before the show premieres. And I'm going to try and drop at least an episode a week, maybe even more. We'll see what happens as far as this you know, watch journey goes. Um, I'm not going to talk about each specific episode. It's not going to be a one for one sort of thing. I'll talk about batches of episodes. I'll talk about, you know, just general feelings and vibes. I'll do deeper dives on certain episodes. Probably. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of, uh, uh, material that I can use to support some of this stuff, but I don't necessarily want to just regurgitate things. Um, however, one of my favorite podcasts of all time is hardcore history by Dan Carlin. And I love the way Dan is able to take so many different pieces and kind of send synthesize them into uh, you know a narrative about a certain event um, or a certain sequence of events and so much in the same way I would love to be able to take you know these disparate threads whether it's an article from Star Trek magazine or a page in the Deep Space Nine companion or an interview on uh, what we left behind you know documentary or whatever and just kind of you know pull the threads together and give you kind of, you know, the fate's wide wheel narrative, if you will. Um, so we'll see what happens. I, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I hope it'll be a lot of fun. And I really look forward to your feedback. Uh, feel free to, you know, to drop a comment here on YouTube, um, you know, to, to send us a comment uh, uh, over on any of the social medias. Uh, we are on threads now. Um, I'm going to be uh, a little bit more active over there. I hadn't been as active on there. Um, I, I, Dennis usually does the Instagram and TikTok stuff, but he hasn't done some of that in a while. So um, I'm not quite sure if, uh, uh, if I'll be doing a little bit more of that. Um, I might, um, I, I think with, when it comes to the TikTok, I might actually just be using my own account for that. We don't really have a fates wide wheel account. Um, so, uh, you'll, 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 you'll see it. I'll, I'll post stuff. I'll, I'll throw stuff up on, uh, um, Instagram as well. Um, and of course there's always Twitter or X or, whatever. Um, I, I promise not to get in the weeds of this. I really do enjoy the format. I enjoy that circle of, of friends so much that I am loathe to leave Twitter, but at the same time, it's hard to stick around when I just feel like it's, it's becoming this weird, dark, oppressive place. Uh, even though I don't see that, I don't feel that when I go to my, uh, uh, you know, my timeline, um, or whatever it's called, forgive me. It's been a long weekend. It's only Saturday. Um, but yeah, I, I, but I hear about it and I see it other places and, 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 and other conversations. But for me personally, I feel lucky because I get to talk with all of you and you all are bright and beautiful and wonderful. And, and, and I love that. And, and I just thank you for it. It's really, um, been quite gratifying to know that the space that we've been able to cultivate at Fate's Wide Wheel is not, um, the, shitstorm that apparently the rest of the platform is these days. So anyway, um, you can, you know, find us there, obviously, uh, send us a comment, let us know what you think. Um, uh, really appreciate you all so very much and appreciate those of you that have continued to, to stick by us and support the show. Um, as we kind of go through this weird downtime when we're not necessarily having, um, as much content and, and, and we're not having, um, you know, the, the, the weekly conversations that, that, that we were having. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, we can continue, um, to, to, to bring that to you, uh, and, 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 and give you more, um, as we go forward. Um, so, 
it's yeah, it's 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 really something that again I'm I'm very 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 um, thankful for and continue to be thankful for, um, which brings me to something else. I want to thank the folks that continue to support the show by throwing us your dollars in spite of the fact that we're not producing regularly right now, but hope to be very, very soon. Um, and once things do resolve with the strike, I know for a fact that there are some people that want to get back on this show and talk to you all as well. So keep that in mind. Um, but I, I certainly want to, uh, want to thank everyone that is, uh, supporting the show with their hard earned dollars. As always, I would say, look for a local charity, find a cause that you believe firmly in, look for some wrongs to set right and, uh, support those first. Uh, of course, uh, those that are always really near and dear to my heart include doctors without borders and the Trevor project. Um, but there are many, many more out there, of course, that are, uh, as important and, uh, and, and deserve our attention, um, before this little old podcast. Um, but if after that, of course, you have some change shaking around in your pocket, and you want to throw it our way, by all means, join these wonderful people, which include uh, Christina Geist, Chris, aka Brackman, Dan Tuig, Rob Nunn, Heather Strabiak, Stupot47, Kevin, Lady Eternal, Carolyn, Joe Saparito, Dermot Devlin, Michelle Hoffman, Jason Geist, Joanne Bartlett, Cosplay Dad, Kevin Butcher, Al's Place, Quantum Leap Fanside, Mike Stouffer, Adrian Saul, Brian McDreadful, Shuggy, that's Damon Shugamelli, uh, Barry Donovan, Troy Evers, Larry Trujillo, Amy Holt Camp, Karen Saxon, Rich Bork, Christopher Redmond, oddly specific with Audra and Dana Bias. Thank you all so very much. We really, truly appreciate it. Um, it's, uh, it means a lot. It really does. It's not something, honestly, that I really thought, um, was going to, um, happen. And so the fact that, that y'all have been supporting us, um, it, it means a lot and, and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to get out of here. Uh, it is definitely time to leap on. Uh, you've listened to me for long enough. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Stay safe out there. And remember to always, always leap responsibly. If I